The FDA approves a second booster for Americans over the age of 50. The White House launches a one-stop shop for all things COVID at COVID.gov, but Congress has yet to pass COVID funding. The House Oversight Committee held a hearing on pathways to universal health care coverage in the United States. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. My full name is Abdurrahman Muhammad Al-Sayed. Growing up, that and my olive complexion were a clear giveaway that my family hadn't been in this country as long as most of my peers. And it's true. My parents immigrated to this country from Egypt in the 1970s. Growing up, I heard all the names, raghead, camel jockey, others that don't bear repeating. I've been told to go back to my country more times than I can name. This is my country. The folks saying these things to me don't understand that America is not about quote-unquote blood and soil, as they claim. It's about commitment to the ideals on which this place was founded, however far it has yet to go to realize them. See, here's the irony. I was raised by my father and my stepmother, Jackie. She was born Jackie Johnson, and her family, they've been here since before the Revolutionary War. My brother, whose name is as recognizably foreign as mine, more so even, his name is Osama, is a blue-blooded American. If America was blood and soil, Osama Sayed probably has more claim to this place than most of the folks who tell him to go, quote-unquote, back to his country. But here's the truth. Since the advent of this country, tenure in America has been used to discriminate against people of all stripes. In 2022, 256 years since the founding, we are still having a live debate about immigration. As a proud child of immigrants, it's not lost on me that the mostly white folks who are so anti-immigrant, like Donald Trump, whose family immigrated to this country from Germany, are all children of immigrants themselves. I shouldn't have to remind you, there weren't white people on this continent before colonialism. And unless you're Native American or a black descendant of enslaved people, your ancestors immigrated to America too. The vast majority of immigrants come here seeking a better set of opportunities, hoping and working to offer something better for their families. And by all accounts, Americans like my siblings and I are a living testament to their sacrifice. But my parents chose this. They weren't forced to leave their home and everything they knew. If things didn't work out, there was always the option to go back. One of my best friends growing up was also an immigrant, but his family... They came under very different circumstances. He's Palestinian-American. His family were refugees, twice over. They lost their family home in Palestine after settlers forced them out. They were then displaced from the refugee camp in Lebanon, where they landed. The consequences of forced displacement, the loss of a homeland, the insecurity of knowing that everything your ancestors had built for you was dashed, that always weighed heavily on them. There was no going home for them. The home they knew had been taken away. Over the last month, we've watched as millions of people have been forced from their homes by the same force of war. We've watched the tearful separation of families forced to flee. We've watched families boarding trains out of the country with nothing but what they can fit in their suitcases, children lugging along a favorite stuffed animal as they leave everything they've ever known. Because of the unprecedented level of coverage of this war, Americans have had a front row seat to the agonies of war, the pain of forced migration. We're bearing witness to the plight of Ukrainian refugees. But I can't help but think of all the victims of war from whom we've withheld our attention. Their suffering is just as real, just as jarring, just as wrong. But we simply ignored them. What's the difference? These are victims of wars our country has either led or supported. And these refugees aren't as likely to have blue eyes and blonde hair because they're from places like Iraq or Afghanistan or Yemen, the Sahel or Ethiopia. The difference is the racism that has allowed us to justify making war on people and then justifying it by claiming that these wars are somehow essential to these people, that these are just war-torn countries whose uncivilized people can't keep the peace. 
consider this kind of coverage. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. The truth is that it doesn't matter where you come from, what you did for work or the color of your skin. It matters that you're a victim of war and that the world owes you another chance at a dignified life. We owe the refugees in Ukraine every chance at rebuilding, just like we owe refugees from every other conflict the same basic humanity. Today on the pod, I wanted to talk more about the challenges facing Ukrainian refugees and refugees from all over the world. And so I turned to one of the most important global organizations working to offer refugees those basic dignities. Founded by Albert Einstein, the IRC serves tens of thousands of refugees a year, both through direct services as well as through advocacy efforts to push governments to do their part. Our guest today is the president and CEO of the IRC, David Miliband. He's been thinking about these issues for decades, first as a member of parliament for the United Kingdom, rising to serve as the country's foreign secretary, as well as in his current role. He joined me to talk about the immediate needs facing Ukrainian refugees, the world's double standard on refugees, and why we still can't seem to avoid wars in the first place. After this break... Uh, let's jump uh, right in. Can you introduce yourself for the tape? It's David Miliband, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Before leading the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband worked in UK politics, serving as a member of parliament and foreign secretary under Prime Minister Gordon Brown. The son of immigrants who fled persecution, this work is personal to him. Thank you so much for, for joining us here today, considering how much important work you all are doing right now. I, I want to ask you, can you just tell us a little bit about your day-to-day at IRC? What's the work that you do uh, and what is the work that your organization is, is doing in this ongoing refugee crisis? The International Rescue Committee is a global humanitarian charity headquartered in New York and the largest refugee resettlement agency in the United States across 25 cities here. Uh, we were founded by Albert Einstein in the 1930s to rescue Jews from Europe. Uh, our first employee was running a safe house in Marseille in 1940 and issued 2,000 fake passports that helped people like Marc Chagall escape from Nazi-occupied Europe. And today we're a large global entity. We're working in about 200 field sites in 30 war-torn countries around the world. And we're unusual because we're not just an anti-poverty agency. We're an agency whose mission is to help people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster, including the climate crisis. And we seek to help them survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. So we're focused on crisis, uh, and we work across the arc of crisis, from the war zone in Ukraine today, or the conflict zone uh, in uh, Yemen, or the people fleeing gang violence in El Salvador. Uh, we work on refugee transit routes when people cross borders for fear of their lives. And we work on the process of integrating refugees into their new lives, both in the United States and in countries, higher income countries like Germany would be a good example where we've established a big program uh, recently. Uh, we're also a large impact evaluation agency, the largest impact evaluation agency in the humanitarian sector. In that sense, we're hard-headed humanitarians. We talk about value for money and impact 
because uh, matters of life and death especially need really hard evidence to guide good practice. And so obviously we're busy at the moment, I'm afraid. I mean, on what's on my desk at the moment? Well, obviously Ukraine. Uh, we now have hubs inside Ukraine where we're working on health, water and sanitation, cash distribution. Uh, and we've got operations in Poland and Moldova on the European side. But one of the themes for us is that we don't switch resources from Afghanistan or from Yemen or from the Sahel or from Ethiopia to Ukraine. We add to them because we don't want the people of Yemen or Ethiopia or Syria to pay the price of the Ukraine crisis alongside everyone else. So that, in a nutshell, is what we do. We're, we've got about 17,000 staff and 20,000 volunteers in those 200 field sites. We've got about uh, 1,200 staff in the US. And uh, we're a growth industry for bad reasons because we're living in this age of impunity where very bad behavior that's contrary to international law puts civilians at risk. Yeah. I really appreciate that work. And I, I'd read that this work is personal for you. Can, can you talk a little bit about your, your parents' experience? It is personal in a way. I, don't, I, I, I hesitate to suggest any degree of grandiosity because I had a secure middle-class upbringing in 1970s UK. But uh, my parents didn't. My dad was a refugee from Belgium in 1940. He came with his dad and finished high school in England and then joined the Royal Navy, actually. Uh, his, his mother and sister stayed in uh, occupied Belgium and, and ended up being sheltered by a Catholic family south of, south of Brussels. And my mother came to the UK, not quite as an orphan, but she did come on her own. Her mother was still alive, but um, she came as a 12-year-old in 1946. Her father was killed in a concentration camp. And so both Jewish parents who, I mean, I literally wouldn't be here if the UK had not admitted refugees in the 1940s and 50s, or at least those refugees, because Britain turned a lot of, away a lot of people as well as welcoming some. And in some respects, your outcome is what you're working toward, right? Is that is that for the experience of people for whom war uh, has ripped away the fundamental foundations of their lives is that you can hope that you can create some space, some opportunity to to grow up in a, you know, middle-income uh, upbringing in a place where their talents, their capacities, uh, their opportunities are um, afforded and and that they can actually seek to to win the rewards of that. Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. I, I, I wouldn't, I haven't presented myself as a sort of refugee success story, but my, my parents uh, found their own um, attachment to the UK. I think they were always foreigners in the UK, but they were obviously British citizens. They became British citizens, and they became quite British in their own way. I mean, they were foreign but British, and. I've lived and worked in the US now, but I, I, I still feel very British and certainly feel very lucky that my parents were able to build new lives in in the UK. And certainly that that notion that the humanitarian enterprise should be about survival, but it should be about more. It should be about helping people thrive, not just survive. That's really important. And I think that's not just a moral thing. At a time when refugees are displaced for a long time, when they're displaced in urban environments, not in camps, when it's less and less likely that they're going to go home. It's not enough to say that humanitarian work is just keeping people alive, water, sanitation, food, healthcare, and then that's it. No, that's not 
that's not a that's not a sufficient definition of the humanitarian effort. Surely it must be about education. It must be about livelihoods. It must be about thriving, not just surviving. Well, I really appreciate that point, right? Because that's <laughs> the the ability to survive is is not the ambition that we have for ourselves. Um, and I think when the 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 circumstances uh, of someone's life gets ripped out from underneath them. That shouldn't be the expectation that we have for other people, too. And I'll tell you, I'm glad that you feel British because you certainly sound British uh, as someone who lived in the UK. <laughs> Don't I sound like I'm from Brooklyn? <laughs> um, I, I want to I jump in, unfortunately, to the, to the, to the, to the matter at hand, the, the most pressing, ongoing uh, forced migration crisis that we see in the world right now, which is, of course, the crisis in Ukraine. You know, that number changes every day. Uh, can you give us a sense of the scale of the forced migration, both inside of Ukraine, and that's something we don't pay much attention to, but inside of Ukraine and then also outside Ukraine? Yeah, I think the internal displacement, which obviously is much harder to count than the number who cross borders, but the internal displacement must be around 8 million now Mm. out of an original population of 44 million. Uh, That's more or less the same level of internal displacement as you've seen in Syria, where obviously the population was half the size. There was only 22, 23 million in Syria. Um, But... 8 million people on the run, I I would say, inside Ukraine. And then another 3.5 million who have crossed a border into generally Poland, but also Hungary, also Moldova. So they're refugees. Uh, They've left their homeland. And just by way of comparison, because I mentioned Syria, it took three months for a million Syrians to leave Syria in 2011. It took one week for a million Ukrainians to leave Ukraine in 2022. Uh, That partly speaks to obviously a transport infrastructure, but frankly, it more speaks to the virulence of the early stages of the Ukrainian campaign. What I can only describe as a campaign of pulverization that was attempted in the first week. And now three and a half million people with a particular uh, angle that I think is important to mention which is that in every humanitarian emergency, the majority of IRC's clients are women and children. In this crisis, of course, as you know, it's only women, children, and then elderly men who have been allowed to leave the country because the men between the ages of 18 and 60 have been conscripted. So understanding the the double trauma of people being ripped from their homes, in your phrase, but also pretty much every family leaving a father, a husband, a brother behind and not knowing whether you're going to see them again. So this crisis has dramatized what it means to pack a bag, leave your home, leave part of your family and not know whether you're going to see them ever again. And obviously, as we'll no doubt come to talk about, this isn't the only refugee crisis in the world, far from it. It's not the only conflict, although it's the only hot war between states at the moment. Uh, which we might come back to. But it's the capstone on what I call the age of impunity that exists. And I think it it does offer an enormous call to arms, really, or maybe arms is the wrong way of putting it, a call to action. Uh, because, And you've seen that in the way people have responded in Europe and around the world. Uh, but it also, uh, I think, enjoins us to think about how it's representative of a global disorder that is so dangerous for so many people. No, the, the point that you make about the capacity for this moment 
to spiral out. And I think the one that everyone is paying attention to, of course, is um, where Vladimir Putin might go next. But it also has, uh, in some respects, been a litmus test for other autocratic leaders uh, with designs on smaller, weaker territories near them, Uh, whether you're talking about uh, China and Taiwan, uh, or you're talking about India and Kashmir, um, it, it, it definitely sets a stage and the order of impunity, as you as you framed it, I think does capture something about the potential risk in terms of human costs, uh, lives and livelihoods lost for what's at stake in this particular crisis. I, I want to just really zoom in here on who these people are up until a month ago, they were living their lives, um, much like you and I, and and now they are fleeing. When you talk about internally displaced people, where are they going? And then, you know, where are folks who are choosing to leave Ukraine, where are they going? Well, in the Ukraine context, if, you, if you're fleeing internally, you're basically going west because the Russian forces have failed to penetrate um, beyond the center and west of the country, beyond the center of the country. And actually, uh, according to some reports, some of which are disbelieved, they are in retreat back to the east. And if you're a refugee, you've, you've gone over the border, basically to the west, uh, the Polish border, the Hungarian border, or the southwest, the Moldovan uh, border. Uh, you're, you're therefore a, by international standards, a relatively middle-class re- refugee. The uh, average annual income in Ukraine was around $7,000 a year. And you're entering the world's largest, richest single market, uh, the European continent. Uh, by, by way of contrast, 85% of refugees around the world are in poor or lower middle-income countries. So they're in Bangladesh if they're Myanmar refugees, Burmese refugees. They're in Uganda if they're refugees from Democratic Republic of Congo or from South Sudan. Uh, they're in Jordan and Lebanon if they're from Syria. And so these refugees have fled east, have fled west, and the internally displaced have, have fled west as well. Although there are some reports of people going back towards the center and even the east of the country. And obviously... We're talking at a moment when it's it's clear to most people that the Russian invasion is not winning. And the question in many people's minds is whether or not uh, the the current discussion of a pause is really a a rebooting and a retooling and a rearming, or whether it's a genuine uh, recognition in Moscow that they need to lower their war aims. Yeah. And as people flee, you know, you talked uh, about, you know, in some respects, you know, one hates to talk about um, refugees as as having privilege, but in some respects, the point that you made is that there is um, strong uh, exit infrastructure and they're being welcomed into the European Union. What has been the state of the welcome? I know there's reporting uh, out of Poland about, you know, Poland being in effect saturated uh, to, to, to this point and, um, and, and, and many uh, fleeing further west into places like Germany or Switzerland. Um, what has been the experience for uh, the, the median Ukrainian refugee? And um, the, the real question, right, as people are, are focused on this and, and, and the war extends itself, how long do you think that state of welcome will last? Well, the second question is obviously $64 million question. I think that essentially, I take an optimistic view of your second question, which is this, this has been such a shock to the European body politic, that I think there is a good chance 
that Europe will, the European countries will fulfill the commitments they've made, which are as a first and I have to say extremely decisive step to offer three years residency, three years work permits, three years access to services, three years access to education, three years effectively welfare support to Ukrainians. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty bold move that was made by the EU 27. Uh, My own country, the UK, was a laggard in this, remains a bit of a laggard in this. But I think uh, UK, Norway, Switzerland, European countries that are outside the EU need to norm towards that European base. Obviously, the European European level, the the different European countries have taken different numbers. And there's a weird debate going on in Europe about whether or not to have a relocation plan. Weird in the sense that, as I understand it, Poland and Hungary are arguing against relocating Ukrainian refugees out of Poland and Hungary, even though there are very large numbers of people there, partly because they want the European Union to pay for them, uh, for hosting of refugees. And you may be going on to ask this, one has to recognize, not just an irony, but a a fact that the welcome of Eastern Europeans for the Ukrainian refugees is in marked contrast to the attitude towards Syrian refugees in 2015-16, when essentially the German and Swedish and Greek and Italian governments picked up must have been 90% of the Syrians who arrived in Europe to claim asylum. And this unity is very welcome, but it's obviously uh, related to uh, where the refugees are coming from. And the fact they're coming from Ukraine has made it far more palatable to Hungarian and Polish leadership to welcome these people. Nonetheless, it's a hell of a thing they've taken on. Yeah, It's a hell of a thing that they've taken on to, 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 to welcome these people. I, I want to, you know, I, I want to zoom in on that as well, because, you know, you don't even have to go to 2015, 2016, you can go back three months ago when uh, you had this um, standoff between Belarus and Poland over refugees who were literally freezing to death in uh, the forests uh, on their way to try and get into the EU. And one of the things that happens, right, is that the, the other crises don't stop because the Ukrainian crisis started. And for, you know, you don't want to think about these things in zero-sum terms, but in terms of the behavior that we've seen from many governments, they kind of are. And um, what does it mean for refugees from poorer, browner countries uh, who may pray a different way than the median resident of, a, of an EU country? What does it mean for them? And, you know, how do we explain to ourselves the, the clear double standard that has happened between who gets to be a worthy refu- refugee uh, in the terms of, of Noam Chomsky and who doesn't? Well, I think that there's a couple of things there. I mean, first of all, we have to call it as we see it. And what we see is that people are being treated differentially because of their race and their religion, and that should be called out. And what we should also call out is the common humanity of the refugee who's a butcher in Ukraine or the refugee who's a butcher in Damascus or the refugee who is a baker in Burma or the refugee who's a farmer in South Sudan or the refugee who's a farmer in Ukraine they are they're refugees first. They're not Ukrainians or Burmese or South Sudanese. And we have a universal declaration of human rights and we have a refugee convention that is intended or is meant to commit countries to treat refugees according to their status, not according to their race or their religion. And so I think the first thing is to call that out very strongly. Secondly, to use this as a teachable moment. Europe has pulled together 
and it has lent into a problem rather than running away from a problem. And that is necessary for the other problems that continue to exist in places further away than Ukraine. And certainly, I wrote about this in Time magazine, that the, 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 the idea that refugees sheltering in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh should pay the price of the Ukraine invasion because of reductions in aid support, I mean, that's a double, that's a double uh, tragedy. And I think that my own perspective on this is that the hosting of refugees is a global public good. Right. In that the benefit is not confined to those who, who offer it. In fact, it's a global benefit, but it needs to be paid for. And to the extent that responsibility is being exercised by poor countries, they need to be subsidized by rich countries uh, in, a, in an appropriate way. I think it's good that President Biden has said he welcomes 100,000 Ukrainians to the US, but not at the expense of refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo or refugees uh, from El Salvador or refugees from anywhere else. And yes, that is idealistic, but I always tell people that the, the choice in the 21st century is not between whether or not people arrive as asylum seekers or refugees or not arrive. The choice is, do they arrive in an orderly, humane, legal way? Or do they arrive in a disorderly, inhumane and illegal way? And those two choices also carry the, the point that in the ordered route, there is, you minimize the scope for profiteering by people smugglers. In the illegal, disorderly route, you maximize the scope for profiteering by people smugglers. And, you know, the, the, the point that you made about uh, legal and illegal is an important one because that's a choice about what, what kinds of laws that our societies pass. And I think oftentimes to sort of key into your point is that we as a society, whether we're talking about, you know, here in the United States or other societies abroad, have to make decisions about whether or not we want to empower through the law our role in helping to address and, and plug that global public good or not. And I, I worry often is that in the United States is that we have a very broken set of laws around immigration. And then we blame other people who are often forced to, to flee their own homes, often as a result of our own policies abroad uh, and our own adventurism. And then because we, we have such a broken set of public policies, then we call them uh, lawbreakers and, and punish them for it, right? And, and so in some respects, the question is about, you know, A, what are we doing to create policy that does not create refugees in the first place? And then B, what are we doing to create policies that helps to address the global public good, as you called it, of empowering, protecting, and uh, providing refuge uh, to refugees? Yeah, I mean, most refugees today are fleeing as a result of conflict. We're not talking about economic migrants we're talking and so when we're, we're talking about people who, who have a right to claim asylum which is an international legal right so it's not about what laws america has passed it's th these are international standards that america has signed up to and those people fleeing conflict are not fleeing wars between states they're fleeing wars within states and the, how you cauterize and address wars within states requires a completely different diplomatic toolkit from how you address wars between states, and no one's very good at that. So the reasons that people flee are different from the model of diplomacy that we all have in our heads and that which is actually going to be appropriate in this Ukraine crisis. You know, the, the interesting question here is, is that I don't, I don't know that I see the differentiation between economic migration and conflict migration 
the same way anymore, considering the fact that if you look at what's happening in Russia, people are being sanctioned in a pretty profound way, justifiably so, considering what their government is doing. But if you think about a a sanction as an economic weapon, uh, Nick Mulder wrote a fantastic book about this. In some respects, it's the only weapon that has warlike aims that operate specifically by targeting the public, right? The, the, The whole operational point of a sanction is to inflict pain on on civilians such that those civilians will take their frustration out on their government to change public policy. And the irony of it is that these are often used in in places where the the the, the leaders who are making such terrible decisions like Vladimir Putin are insulated because they're autocrats. And so you create economic hardship on people and people flee the economic hardship and in some respect, we wouldn't call them uh, refugees of war per se, but they are actually refugees of of war patterns. I I wonder what your your sense of that is. I'm not I I, I um, not just in the interest of a debating point, but because I think I, I do. Uh, in fact, I, I do disagree with that because the definition of a refugee is someone for whom it's not safe to be at home. Now, to the extent that sanctions are impoverishing a country as opposed to its rulers, it's not unsafe. Now, if they're a protesting political minority, if there are some other kind of minority, it may be unsafe, in which case they have a right to claim asylum. But I think there is a difference between the baker who was running his bakery in Damascus. I've met this person. That's why I keep coming back to this example, Mm. whose bakery is bombed by the Assad regime uh, and who flees. There's a difference between him and his family. And he's now in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, because I've met him. And the person whose living standards are impaired in one part of the world and they want to live in another part of the world. And um, I think that the the flexibility of the asylum and refugee regime is real because the definition of a well-founded fear of persecution has developed over time. So today, if you're a woman on the run from an abusive husband, that counts as grounds for asylum, whereas 50 years ago, case law hadn't developed in that way. But I do think that is different from the, the, the people who are moving for economic reasons. It doesn't mean, by the way, that one is good and the other is bad. I'm not trying to draw a moral distinction of that kind. But there is a legal distinction between someone who's claiming refugee status and someone who's claiming immigration. And I, I see your point. I guess my response to that would just be that I think there is a difference, and I, I don't disagree with you on that. I think rather than thinking them about them as clear differences in class, I rather think about them as differences along a continuum. Because, you know, if, if you think about both of them are, uh, are victims of leaders behaving badly in, you know, in a, in a regime of impunity, as you, ta- as you called it, one of them, you know, I, I, and, and even beyond that, the, the dangers are, you know, what we, what we think of as dangers or as, as acceptable uh, consequences of, of sanctions I would argue in some circumstances become really dangerous. So if you're someone who can't get healthcare in your country because your country has been sanctioned to the point where you you, you actually can't, that there is not healthcare available to you, um, that is a pretty dangerous circumstance in which you're living because of conflict. And well, that's a good point. I, I, I mean, you can, yeah, look, and I, and I, I, you can make that point. You know, we, we talk about people from Venezuela as being refugees where 60% of the doctors have left the country. That's not a sanctions result, but that's an interesting point. So your continuum... Uh, point is a good one. My own reflection, though, on the US situation is that, and actually the, uh, on my own experience in the UK, 
is that when issues of immigration become indistinguishable from issues of refugees and asylum, it's bad for immigrants and it's bad for refugees. I mean, it's, right. it, the, the confusion doesn't help anyone. We'll be back with more with David Milband after this break. And we're back with more of my conversation with David Miliband. The other um, sort of index case I'm thinking a bit about here, just to to fully complete the cycle, is you think about what's happening in Afghanistan. And the war has ended. So in theory, people are not fleeing war. But they're certainly fleeing decades of war in the past. And in that circumstance, they are in effect, fleeing the lagged impact of, of decades of war on their lives. Um, I want to you know, ask you, because you, you've thought about these issues from, from, from another side, um, having served as, as foreign secretary, uh, thinking about how you use diplomacy to address war. And obviously, whether you're talking about a continuum or a differences in class, we know that war destroys people's lives. We know that it, um, it, it forces them to leave their homes. And yet it seems that in 2022, we're still, we're still in a scenario where all our technology, all of our communication hasn't bought us away from war. In some respects, it's, it's actually created a, a, a worse tinderbox um, for autocrats and, and others uh, to exploit, to, to create the circumstances of war. As someone who's, who's sort of thought about this from a, um, a diplomatic perspective and a global security perspective, how does that impact your, your sense of, of, of what we owe refugees and why we still create war in the first place? Well, war is the failure of diplomacy, almost by definition. And it is striking that the Ukraine crisis is unusual for being a war between states. I mean, countries don't really invade each other anymore. That's not the way they do things. Sometimes they launch cyber attacks, but this is pretty unusual. And there are 55 civil conflicts, so-called civil, they're not very civil, but 55 conflicts going on around the world at the moment. Eight of them are classified as severe because there's more than a thousand battlefield deaths associated with them. And one of the, there's one, now the 56th is an invasion of one state by another. Now, those 55 conflicts have a number of important features. They are internationalized in that there's a lot of external interference and support for one side or the other with 10, 15, 20 different uh, groups being supported by uh, different sides. If you think about Libya, if you think about Yemen, southern Yemen, if you think about the Syrian civil war, there's a lot of external actors. Secondly, there's non-state actors as well as state actors for obvious, uh, an, an obvious point. Uh, but they are not generally wars between states, between organized um, states fighting for land. That's what makes this unusual. And I do believe, as I indicated earlier, that we have to think about diplomacy in a whole new way when we're thinking about internal conflict that has ramifications for a whole region. Let me just give you one, one example. In wars between states, there, you've got a, a corpus of international law that applies and you've got international experience. For wars within states, one of the fundamental principles of the international system, namely state sovereignty, is a, used as a shield against accountability for the outside world. We see this more and more in the places that we work, that the language of sovereignty is used to trump 
the language of rights that's in the UN Charter or in refugee charters or elsewhere. And I think we're at an early stage of realizing quite how limiting the reliance on sovereignty alone is in an interdependent world. I mean, you can think that about, you know, if a country wants to not run its own health system properly, if a country wants to pollute the climate, that has impact on people beyond the country as well as people within the country. When there are refugee flows as a result of persecution in a country, that has consequences outside. So I think we're at an early stage of figuring out how to make diplomacy work. And one indication of that failure is that civil wars last so long. I mean, there's a famous phrase, the most likely outcome of a civil war is a restart of the civil war. Hmm. And that, I think, is should be very sobering for any of us who've been involved in the diplomatic world. Uh, let me say one other thing. I feel that if you're sitting at the foreign policy end and the humanitarian end, you're looking from different end of the telescope at the same problem. If you're in diplomacy, as I used to be, you can see the big picture and the danger is you lose sight of the people. If you're in an NGO where I am now, the danger is that you can see all the people, but you lose sight of the big picture. And what I've tried to do with the International Rescue Committee is help us uh, situate ourselves right in the middle of that telescope. So we're able to see the people and really help the people. We think we helped 31 million people last year. But you also see the big picture, can understand trends like impunity, like the internationalization of civil conflict, and that you can speak truth to power about what we're witnessing. I want to ask you two more questions. Um, the first is that, you know, we talked about sort of this um, unfortunate hierarchy of attention paid to refugees. Uh, and I, I wonder what you think of the fact that, you know, th the coverage of this in all of its human detail has really shown a light on what refugee status looks like, on what the experience of being a refugee is. Do, do you feel like that might change people's attitudes to um, refugees from, from other crises uh, in, in terms of opening folks' hearts and, and helping them to to sort of impute what it means to be a refugee when they hear these numbers of forced migration but don't necessarily see the pictures, as has been the case in most other conflicts? Yeah, I mean, I'm an optimistic person, so I have to guard against optimism bias. But the short answer is yes, that I think the next time I say refugees are farmers, refugees are teachers, refugees are journalists, refugees are charity workers, refugees are business people, and it could be you or me, an image will come into people's mind in the West that they can visualize in the same way that Africans can think of people from the Democratic Republic of Congo or people from the Middle East can think of Syrians. I think that there is a, to the extent that you're speaking about a Western public, I think that there is a chance of a reset. I mean, I my own view is that the Afghan... Um, the end of the Afghan war and the scenes at Kabul airport and the entry of 70,000 Afghans into the US last August was an is an opportunity for a reset in America about the way it thinks of refugees. And now we have this Ukraine crisis on top. And it's not about good refugees or bad refugees, but it is a moment for potential reset. So I, I, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic because, my God, the cacophony of uh, Western politics is pretty crazy. But I think that there's a lot to play for now. Yeah, I appreciate that point. And I, I hope you're right. And it's almost, we've pit 
um, people's empathy against, I hate to say it, but, you know, racism and bias. And my hope is that people's empathy wins. Um, I want to ask you lastly about the climate crisis. The only thing I'd say to that is that empathy has to be attached to agency and manageability. Manageability is not a great word, but Mm. I think people are empathetic, but when they look at the scale of the problems, they think the problems are unmanageable. And my argument is always, yes, 35 million people who are refugees or asylum seekers is a hell of a lot of people, but that is a manageable problem. It's not an unmanageable problem. And so uh, whenever people say we've got to call on people's empathy, I, I say yes, but we've also got to tell them this is a manageable crisis. It's not an unmanageable crisis. Right. And, and in some respects, connect that empathy to a set of actions that they can take yes. to change their country's yes. response to the issue. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I worry, right, because the, the obvious parallel here is nimbyism. We all agree that homelessness is a terrible issue, and it's very sad to see people who are homeless. And then when there are calls for, for affordable housing in folks' community, they say, yeah, build it in the other community next door, not here. And I worry that that is, that is what the empathy must pierce if, uh, if we're serious about solving this problem. The last question I want to ask you is about the climate crisis, and, and you talked about climate refugees. And in some respects, it goes back to that question about uh, about about contrasts, um, because in, in in some respects, right, I, climate refugees are people who are suffering the economic catastrophe of climate change. Um, I want to ask you about how you feel that the conversation about this has evolved. Are we paying enough attention to the forced migration that will result from climate change? And you know, in order to to think about this appropriately, what ought we be doing now to prepare? Yeah, I don't feel good about this. So this may not be, a, you may want to ask another question just so we don't end on a complete downer. I don't feel good about this mm. at all. I mean, we've lived through a COVID emergency where the threat was clear and present and the international action was limited. And in the climate case, it's long-term. To some extent, it's less visible than COVID. It's less personal than COVID. So I'm really, I'm really worried. It's also the case that the humanitarian community and the environmental community haven't found common cause, which I think is a real problem because you're right that climate crisis is a conflict multiplier, it's therefore a refugee multiplier, it's a, it's a humanitarian crisis multiplier, but the two worlds haven't found ways to work together. I mean, I'm doubly sad about it because 15 years ago, I was Secretary of State for the Environment in the UK. We, in the summer of 2007, uh, came up with the idea of the Climate Change Bill, which was the world's first long-term legally binding um, reductions emissions requirements for a major industrialized country. We set emissions reductions requirements for the UK for 40 years, and we established a climate change committee like a monetary policy committee to, to oversee it. And that still exists, that architecture. And at the time, there was cross-party. We were a Labour government. The Tories, conservatives on the right of the political spectrum, they actually supported our climate change bill. Mm. And uh, 15 years later, we've had a decade of m growing evidence, but growing denialism about the need for action. And of course, there's there's more private sector action, and there's some more public sector action at different levels. But I mean, the US debate is almost in a worse place today than it was 15 years ago when it comes to the climate crisis. So no I, I think it would be quite wrong to sugarcoat this. I, I mean, future generations are going to curse. Uh, you're a bit younger than I am, but they're going to curse our generation or our generations, plural. So I'm I'm not feeling good about the, uh, the direct impact on my own work, and I'm not feeling good about the narrative that we are developing about how the climate crisis can be met. And 
that worries me a lot. Yeah, me too. Um, so I don't want to end on a negative note, uh, but you, um, you know, you, you do work that is absolutely critical. What gives you hope right now as uh, as we look at the horizon? Well, the hope is very straightforward for me to explain. If you look at the statistics, you get depressed. If you look at the people, you have hope. And what rights do we have to be downcast when you see internally displaced people from across Ukraine in the Lviv concert hall playing, I can't remember, Beethoven or something, in a concert orchestra that they put together. When you hear a, a mother or a grandmother who's fled to Poland through the tears saying that she's determined to return to her home in Ukraine, uh, what right do we have to be downcast? Frankly, when, I, when you meet people from South Sudan or from Syria uh, or from Myanmar, and they say, well, their life may be ruined, but they're determined, they're sure as hell their kid's life won't be ruined, that must be the source of courage, determination, inspiration, frankly. And the inspiration doesn't come from people like me. It comes from the fortitude and the resilience and the commitment and the humanity of the people who are our clients. Well... I, uh, I appreciate you uh, taking us out on a hopeful note. Uh, David Milband, um, thank you for your work at uh, the International Rescue Community, and uh, we appreciate you joining the show. Thanks a lot, Abdul. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Last week, the FDA approved and the CDC recommended a second mRNA vaccine booster for all people aged 50 and up and those 12 and up who are immunocompromised. That comes just in time as cases bottom out and BA2 continues to enrich itself. While cases aren't quite increasing yet, it's highly likely that they could start doing so in the next few weeks. A second booster was okayed on growing evidence that efficacy wanes after about four months after a booster. A new study in the CDC's scientific journal showed that protection against ED visits was 87% two months after receiving a booster. That dropped to 66% just two months later. Given what we understand about the risk for another bump in cases, folks who are immunocompromised or are over 50 who are many months from their first booster should seriously consider getting their next booster in the next few weeks. In preparation, the White House has launched a one-stop shop for all things COVID. You can now go to the brand spanking new website, covid.gov. From vaccine guidance to treatments to masks and travel guidance, it's all there. It's great. But also, why didn't we have this two years ago? And for a third week in a row, Congress has yet to pass funding that is critical to all of these things. So unless you want another healthcare.gov situation, Congress, please, please do your job and pass COVID funding now, please. But on a positive note, the House Oversight Committee held a critical hearing on pathways to universal health coverage, focusing largely on Medicare for All. Here's California Representative Katie Porter questioning one of the witnesses. So I want to recap. Medicare for All would save and many on administrative costs, $200 billion a year. Medicare for All would give patients the most choices, 99% of non-pediatric providers, and Medicare would let doctors practice medicine. Not surprisingly, given these three things, what do we get with Medicare for All? Better health outcomes. And that's why I support Medicare for All, because I support patients over paperwork. Go off, Congresswoman. Oh, and in case you wondered, a huge trial showed that ivermectin has no therapeutic benefit against COVID-19, because of course it doesn't. It's a dewormer. That's all for today. On your way out, I want you to do me a favor. Write, review the show. It really helps getting it to a new audience. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Media store for some America Dissected Drip. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts, our Science Always Wins t-shirts, 
sweatshirts, and dad caps, and our safe and effective tees, which are on sale for $10 off while supplies last. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takao Suzawa and Alex Ruggiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 